stopped us. Nothing did stop us, did it? For over four decades, they've only ever moved forward. It was like, everyone's to come and see the band that used to be Joy Division. Nobody. Through tragedy after tragedy and a complete reinvention. I think I brought calmness. <laughs> and that's like how I knew we were onto a winner. They've never really stopped to take a breath until now. You were happy not being a normal group. They sort of changed the world twice. The fact that they were combining post-punk with club culture, club sounds. And we were thinking, how can anybody dance to this? Which was like an anti-dance record, really. Down the phone goes, you know, hello, is it somebody from Kraftwerk? Yes, the band would like to know how you achieved the bass drum sounds. Are you just happy to be doing something that you love? This is Transmissions. The definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. Coming up in episode three. We rewind the tape back to before Unknown Pleasures to introduce you to a figure who could be considered the father of the band. We were clever enough at the very beginning to know that musicians know fuck all about music. They're given the gift of writing it, but their attitude to it is bollocks. A man who didn't just run a record label, but birthed a creative powerhouse still revered today. Rob then nutted me, and as I went down, he then kneed me in the balls while I hit the floor. Enter Tony Wilson, founder of Factory Records. Without Tony, Factory couldn't have happened, would never have happened. And actually, without Manchester, Tony would not have been Tony Wilson. This was a record label that brought the world a parade of inspired musical misfits. With bands such as A Certain Ratio, The Durutti Column, The Happy Mondays, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, James, and of course, Joy Division. The best description of the whole thing Factory was five men in love with each other and in love with music. We all ended up in love with design in some way and ideas. I've been waiting for a guy to come and take me by the hand. Cause these sensations make me feel the pleasures of a normal man. These sensations bear the answers leaving for another day. But before Tony transformed the Manchester music scene, he was busy with one of his many other jobs, television reporter. One hundred homes have tonight been evacuated as a safety measure after a train carrying... Tony was a TV presenter for Granada Television in the 70s and 80s and possibly the 90s, I think. Everyone used to watch him on TV and everyone used to watch the same channels and there were only, like, four channels. Or if you lived in the house where I grew up, one channel. We had one channel. In the 70s, when he was on TV running Granada Reports, people didn't like him. Lindsay Reid was Tony's first wife and a key figure in the record label's early days. Truly, people didn't like him. They used to slag him off. I mean, I remember getting upset one night after we'd had a row and the neighbour said to me, what are you crying over that jerk for? And tonight we also ask you to take part in our Riff of the Run competition and we continue our policy of inviting live bands into the studio as yet untouched by record company promotion departments. Tonight, the Bowles Brothers Band, Sex Pistols and Gentlemen. 
as well as reporting on the local news, Tony also fronted this short-lived but influential music show, So It Goes. 76 it came out and the first show was very kind of like well 75 the music was quite boring in a way a bit hippie-ish and then you got the punk thing in 1976 sex pistols were on it and suddenly you got all these interesting new bands springing up when we were out and about going to punk gigs sony would always be there he wouldn't be in the queue though he'd walk straight in where people used to shout horrible nasty swear words at him tony wilson you but everyone loved him really I mean, one night at the Electric Circus, he went on stage to speak to the audience and they were all gobbing at him on the front and chucking beer all over him. But I was standing at the back thinking, you poor thing, how awful. And when he got to me, I was like ready to sympathise and he was absolutely elated. He thought it was fantastic. Joy Division drummer Stephen Morris. Tony liked music like everybody else at that time of punk, well, new wave as it was. So. Yeah, he wanted to do something, he wanted to get involved, because that was a great thing about punk struck new wave, get involved, do something. With Tony on the lookout for the new wave, one night in April 1978, he decided to check out a group playing at Rafters Nightclub in Manchester. Peter Hook. Which was a horrendous gig. Ian was really drunk because we were so late going on and he smashed all the tables up and it was the first time I'd seen that side of him, that wound up. And it made for a great performance. You know, me and Barney looking at each other, our eyebrows raising as if to go, oh my God, you know. We'd never seen anything like this in his performance. After his electric performance, Ian, hell-bent on netting Joy Division their first TV appearance, decided to introduce himself to Tony. To walk up to somebody who was as big and successful in life as Tony Wilson, call him a see you next Tuesday for not having us on his programme I just thought wow you know I wished I could be like Ian if you like Impressed with the raw energy of Ian and the rest of the band soon Tony booked the group for their first TV appearance in September 78 Seeing as how this is the programme which previously brought you first television appearances from everything from the Beatles to the Buzzcocks would you like to keep our hand in and keep you informed of the most interesting new sounds in the North West this, Joy Division, is the most interesting new sound we've come across in the last six months. Uh, they're a Manchester band, with the exception of the guitarist, who comes from Salford. Very important difference. They're called Joy Division. This number is Shadow Play. Oh, no. 
With Tony Wilson now on side, and after delivering a characteristically intense TV performance that attracted considerable attention, the band were ready to take it to the next level. But first, they needed help. We'd been through the terrible ordeal of each of us having a go at managing the band, which was infuriating in equal measure every time one of us did it. You know, the other three were always pissed off with the manager. The art is to get a manager that you can all be pissed off with, not a manager where it's in the band and three of you, you know. It's a really, really fractious way of working. It just does not work. But that was out of necessity. We really needed somebody to take charge, just from an admin point of view, really. Enter Rob Gretton, a sometime DJ at Rafters Nightclub. Hello? What are your ambitions, then? OK, I'll ask him, then. Uh, what are my ambitions? My ambitions are never to work again. Uh, when I was 23, I decided that working was pretty boring. So, and he decided to give up working. Rob Gretton came up to Barney and told him that he was going to be our manager. When he came along at the first rehearsal, and Bernard had forgotten to tell us, and this guy with glasses came in, sat down, just sat there. I thought, who the fuck's this cheeky bastard? You know, to walk in our rehearsal room and sit down. And I was like, whoa, this is weird, this is heavy. What is he doing, you know? Then Barney turned around at the end of the song and said, oh, this is Rob Gretton, he wants to be our manager. His attitude was like our attitude that we'd sort of garnered from punk. It was about being individual, being true to yourself, fuck the world, get on with it. Utter self-belief. Nobody, nobody tells you what you are or what you can do. It was like that. And he was like that. Yeah, he was. Meanwhile, Tony Wilson and an actor called Alan Erasmus decided what Manchester needed was a regular club night to showcase these new bands feeding off the raw energy left behind in the wake of punk. Hiring out a venue called the Russell Club, the pair decided to give their night a name, The Factory. Legend has it, inspiration came from Andy Warhol's Manhattan studio of the same name. Here's Tony Wilson speaking to the documentary maker James Nice in 2005. Of all the myths and lies, some of them are true, some of them aren't, but this one is true. You would have thought that with my background in radical art, that it would have occurred to me that the name Factory and Warhol was a wonderful thing. And in fact, nothing to do with that. It was Erasmus seeing a sign somewhere saying, Factory closing, and he thought, well, we'll call it the Factory, we'll have a Factory opening. So it was actually Alan's idea completely. Living in Manchester at the time was Peter Saville a then 21-year-old aspiring graphic designer. Factory started as a night at the Russell Club as a response to the fact that systematically the City Council and Greater Manchester Police had closed down all of the venues for punk groups uh, because of concerns of the social well-being and suddenly there was nowhere for groups to play in Manchester after the city having been astonishingly open. So it was Tony as champion of the new music who took it upon himself with Alan to find a venue and that became the factory and then you know, some of the groups that had played at the factory didn't have a record deal, which we found extraordinary. Tony made this suggestion at Christmas of 1978 that we release a, a record, not with any intention of forming a record company, but just as a springboard of opportunity for those groups who, who we thought were good. 
Earning a modest inheritance after the death of his mother, Tony Wilson spent £5,000 putting together a compilation of songs featuring an assortment of local bands. Cabaret Voltaire, the Durutti Column, as well as the comedian John Dowie and Joy Division. The compilation was called A Factory Sample. And with its release, Factory Records was born. Here, in that same interview, Tony explains how the inspiration for the sampler came from admiring a bootleg copy of an album by the American group Santana. The factory sample is form over content. I mean, we had the Drotty Column, wanted to put a record out. Our mate Rob had this band Joy Division who were wonderful. And I was asked by Roger Eagle, the, the legendary now late Manchester music man who was Eric's in Liverpool, to go and help him restart Eric's records, which had had one hit the year before with Big in Japan. They wanted to do a sampler with four bands. I thought, nice idea, we got the Drotty Column, Joy Division, they had one or two ideas. But the problem was, a few nights before, I'd been tripping round at Chris Joyce's house, who was our drummer. I'd picked up a Far East copy of Santana's Abraxas. In those days, in the Far East, they couldn't afford cardboard, so they printed the sleeve, that beautiful, incredible painting that is the Abraxas sleeve, on almost tissue paper, which was then sealed in plastic. So, off my head on a loosened gents, I was feeling this and thinking, ooh, oh, wow, wow. And um, for whatever reason, I then began to imagine how you could fold paper into plastic and seal it and make double sleeve. This was pretty stupid, but when I got to Liverpool that day, but they wanted to do a 12-inch sampler, and I wanted to do the first double seven-inch since Magical Mystery Tour. And it was just that argument which was irresolvable, because they wanted a 12-inch single, I wanted to do a double seven-inch in this strange plastic packaging. So I drove back down the M62 to say to Alan, fuck them, let's do it ourselves. When we did the sampler, Tony had this, we had some savings, and it's always credited as his savings, but seeing as I was working at the time, I don't see why he should get all the credit. <laughs> but um, I never expected we'd get anything back from that first factory sampler. You know, it was just uh, an exercise in creativity. The wonderful response was that in a gesture of support, people bought that record. I mean, whether they liked it or not, all 5,000 copies of the factory sample were sold. The money plus a bit came back. But most importantly, with the money coming back, also came sack loads of demo tapes because I'd put 86 Palatine Road on the back of the factory sample and it was a new address for, for groups to send their demos to. And some of them were good. 86 Palatine Road, Manchester. Now Factory's official headquarters. Also known as Alan Erasmus's bedsit. Stephen Morris. Factory was just Alan's flat because Alan Erasmus was a big part of Factory. He sadly gets doesn't get as much credit as he deserves as he was a person who did all the doing while Tony did all the talking and possibly thinking. He certainly didn't do any adding up. It was Alan's flat piled up with records. It was just a bedsit. That was factory. With Alan's tiny flat piled high with records and demo tapes and after the surprise success of the factory sampler, soon a plan was hatched to start a new kind of record label. 
one free from the corporate behemoths found in London and beyond. Rob had a thought in his mind, which was, your mother's money you spent on the factory sample. We got back, plus 200 pounds, so we all got 50 quid. An album makes a lot more money than that. The parameters of, uh, of pricing are so different. We could make real money, and if it did work, I wouldn't have to get on a train every week and go to London and talk to cunts. And that was Rob's vision. But this new, fiercely independent approach didn't initially go down well with Ian and the rest of Joy Division. Rob Gretton didn't want to sign Joy Division to a major label. They all asked and Rob felt it was better for the group to not be compromised by a commercial corporation. And so he and Tony decided that they would do Unknown Pleasures. So the whole... The, the evolution of Factory Records was sort of entirely organic. Nobody did it to make money, they just did it because it needed to be done. What has to be remembered in the history of British rock and roll is the man who invented independent music was Robert Leo Gretton. I'd say that something that no one uh, else has mentioned in this programme, and I know because I'm making it, is that uh, Factory is uh, very much to do with punk and punk, as we say uh, here, basically, it was to do with changing the way things operate. The whole project was conducted with this sense of, you know, of idealism, where each was free to do what they wanted to do the way they wanted to do it. You see me every Saturday night in here. What do you say? You say aye, I say aye. Yeah, but every time I go to talk to you, you're running off with some skaggy somewhere or whatever. <laughs> every time I want to talk, it's, I'll, I'll be back in a minute. I'll be back in a minute. Listen, we've got a lot to talk about you and me, haven't we? Yeah, I know. And you right. said last no, time no, I no, see no, 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 no. We got a lot to talk about. This is a very complicated matter. This, you know, money, money, big money. Yeah. Right. And we're waiting until either you say you want to talk to us or we say we want to talk to you. Now we're going right to say from we want the to talk off, to you Factory's freewheeling punk ethos, that belief in freedom of self-expression and liberation from financial constraints, found its way into the recording studio. Bernard Sumner. What Tony did was great. He just came in the studio and said, "Carry on doing what you're doing because what you're doing is great." And just encouraged us. And he never breathed down our neck saying, "I'm not hearing a single, guys." He didn't. He didn't care if there wasn't a single there. On the other hand, for Tony, it wasn't always about a hands-off approach. We were clever enough at the very beginning to know that musicians know fuck all about music. They're given the gift of writing it, but their attitude to it is bollocks. So I think that was the first time I ever realised that was when Joy Division didn't like Unknown Pleasures. You know, this is something incredibly special. Now go fuck yourself. That was an important lesson to learn that musicians are given the godlike gift of writing music. Knowing about music is often a little beyond them. After testing the water with a couple of seven-inch singles by a certain ratio and orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, the watershed moment arrived with the release of Factory's first LP, Unknown Pleasures. 
We did it on known pleasures. Began slowly. We pressed 10,000. The first 5,000 went out to distributors and shops around the country. The other 5,000 were shoved into my garage, largely by Hookie, and to give Hookie his due. When the rest of the 5,000 sold, and we began repressing, 10,000 units times five pounds is 50,000 pounds, 60,000 pounds. Suddenly, you're in business. And that was the vision Rob had, and indeed, Rob never had to go to London to talk to cunts. That was what he wanted. And suddenly, a year later, it's unimaginable that one would sign to a major. Suddenly, you're this political revolutionary force. In an incredibly short period of time, not only was Factory causing a small revolution in the British record industry, it was helping to make Manchester synonymous with a whole new sound. Peter Savile. Manchester itself, the city, though, is very significant. Smaller cities are, are empowering because you know what they offer. And if something isn't there, you might feel motivated to put it there or to create it. Mega cities are overwhelming. You know, in London, you know, you might have an idea, but it is, you're almost defeated before you start because you just think, oh, somebody somewhere is doing that. And maybe I just don't know. Whereas in a smaller city, you do really know. I mean, something's either there or it isn't there. And if it isn't there and you want it, there's a possibility that other people want it too. So rather than feeling defeated by the scale of the place, you actually feel empowered to do something. You know, also from my own point of view on reflection, I know that I had a very kind of regional bourgeois sense of aspiration. The culture that I wanted to experience in my everyday was not there. A factory became a means to put it there. Also, Manchester, some actually verifiable research in, in recent years, defined that Manchester had a decidedly willful civic character. It's the place that built a ship canal because it wasn't near the sea. There is a willfulness in the psyche of Manchester and, you know, Factory epitomises that willfulness. For Stephen Morris, the spirit of the city penetrated the subconscious of the band. You took what was outside the window of the rehearsal room, you took all that in, you took the drive through you in... And when you sat down and played, because you weren't thinking about it, we weren't thinking, we never thought about what we were doing. And because you weren't thinking about it, all that stuff just came out through your playing. It's like people would say to you, your music, you know, it sounds like Manchester. What do you mean it sounds? That can sound like a place. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But it does. Your environment just does come out. Tony, and Rob particularly, Love Manchester. Rob and Tony love Manchester. But as Tony recalls, their love for each other often led to friction. Certainly my relationship with Rob was, um, we were the best of friends and the best of enemies when it did come to fisticuffs. Well, what I used to do in the early days, for example, there was a, a band called Crawling Chaos who were from Newcastle and they were crusties 
before Krusty's existed. The one great thing about them was they used to take the piss out of Joy Division, go, oh, Joy Division, they're fucking great. I, I can't do a Joy accent. So I would try and book Crawling Chaos for every Joy Division gig I possibly could. And there's one night at the, at the Russell Club when suddenly, there it was, it was Joy Division, but Crawling Chaos supporting. And Rob came up to me in the upstairs bit where we served curry, goat and peas, and went, very funny that too. And I went, I thought you'd like it, Rob. With which Rob then nutted me, and as I went down, he then kneed me in the balls and I hit the floor. So, again, the fact that there was occasional violence was relevant. Tony never had as much friction with anybody as he had with me, unfortunately, which is probably why we got divorced. Lindsay Reed. Tony and I had completely different tastes in music, really, and Joy Division was about the only thing we agreed on. The world was so dismal then that it was very exciting. It was enthusiastic. It was a people spotter. It was, it was a, a, a good catalyst. It's like you'd see somebody, oh, I met this guy the other day, you'd like him. You, I'll give him your, you, you go and see him and uh, you know, do something together. And he was always putting people together. For Tony, his ability to spot talent was instrumental in bringing on board another towering figure in the factory story. Someone else who was essential in helping Joy Division realise their potential. Producer Martin Hannett. I think I only have one talent. My talent is an obsession with people who are cleverer than I am. People think I'm very arrogant, which I am, and blah, blah, blah. But it isn't often that egomaniacs have a desire to hang out with people who are cleverer than they are, and I do. And you could see it was something in Martin's eyes, even though our very first meeting was um, hostile. I was introduced to this guy in the forum of the forum, which is this big civic auditorium in Withenshaw. A few weeks before, my show So It Goes, the TV show that launched the Sex Pistols, had just been done over by every single newspaper in Britain. So I was reeling from 47 bad reviews, which the New Manchester Review, or whatever the local magazine was here, the writer in that had called it, well, something rude. So someone said, Martin Hannett's here. I said, oh, hello, Mr. Hannett, pleased to meet you. Did you write that piece in the um, Manchester Review? Martin sort of smiled and said, yes, I did. Fuck you. And I walked off. And for the rest of that night, I was in the dressing room, going back and forth to the stage, announcing the acts. And every half hour, a little boy would knock on the backstage door. Excuse me, uh, Mr. Wilson, uh, Mr. Hannett's out in the car park. Because Martin is pure Manchester. I'm Salford. So Martin expected me to go out and have a fight with him in the car park. I just ignored it completely. But I, every half hour, Mr. Hannett's in the car park. Fuck that. And for whatever reason, we did become become friends. I don't know, I hope that I have a facility for spotting genius. It's a word that's used too often, but there is no way that it's overused for Martin. How much do you feel you contributed to the success of Factory Records? Very little. All I did was make a few records. Nothing. <laughs> well, I don't know. Is it? In a world of market forces, doesn't mean a lot, does it? A world composed entirely of market forces, I guess. Martin Hannett became instrumental in shaping the sound of Factory. But what elevated the operation above an ordinary indie record label was Factory's belief in the incorruptible and interwoven relationship between music, art and design. And that was thanks to Tony, 
and designer Peter Saville. Four musicians and their manager made this film. Other musicians appear in it. Some just didn't make it. Factory Records, a partnership, a business, a joke. The cast, the unemployed actor, Erasmus, the talking head, Wilson, the artistic student, Saville, the mad professor, Hannah, the Perry boy, Gretton, the used... Here's Peter Hook. Factory's image grew again because Tony was interested in art. He was able to indulge himself, along with Pete Saville, who is a great indulgent man. You know, Saville does nothing quickly. He does nothing cheaply. If there's anything you can say, it's that even if you don't understand it, it will have cost a fucking fortune. As you'll hear throughout this series, the design philosophy Peter brought to Factory not only changed the business of music packaging, but was crucial in building a mythology around the music and the bands themselves. But as Peter explains, it came at a cost. There was me trying to give my work time and that really didn't suit everybody else because they were done, you know, they were done and they, they want it out. They, they finished it, they've spent a year doing it and now they want it out. And now why is it not out? Oh, because Peter Saville has not done the cover yet. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But I cared about the covers. They were to me an end in themselves and, well, you know, we're talking about them 40 years later, so... You know, to some extent, I think it was justified. But but I do regret the stress that it gave them. I particularly regret the stress that it gave Rob. And I was selfish about that. But I was being, you know, as much of a perfectionist about it as, as everybody else. Before becoming a founding member of Factory Records, Peter studied graphic design at Manchester Polytechnic in the mid-70s. After a chance meeting with Tony Wilson, one of his earliest commissions is now considered one of his greatest. That sleeve for unknown pleasures. I was given the elements that Joy Division wanted for unknown pleasures and I did my best to put them together and created the, the mechanical artwork one night to go to the printers. I took that artwork the following day around to Rob Gretton's house. I had not heard Joy Division except for one or two of their gigs and the two tracks on the factory sample. But I'd done an album cover because who doesn't do an album cover when they're 21 and 22? You know, I did it because it was there to be done and I really wanted to do it. The day I took it round to Rob, by chance he said, Peter, I have just received the test pressing of the album. Would you like to listen to it? I didn't really. Um... I wasn't sure if I could actually manage to sit through 40 minutes of Joy Division, of what I knew of Joy Division. But having just done the album cover and in front of their manager, I couldn't really say no. So very tentatively, I sat down in Rob Gretton's living room and he put Unknown Pleasures on. I sat there kind of mesmerised, listening to Unknown Pleasures for the first time, looking at the artwork on the table and knowing that kind of by willfulness and chance on my own behalf, I was involved in something important. And I knew that this was the most extraordinary album of the new wave to date. And the feeling of having become part of that was, was really memorable. We 
unknown pleasures, also known as Fact 10. This was the number assigned by Factory to Joy Division's debut album. Fact 1, created a year early in 1978, was the poster for the club night where it all began. But where did this intriguing cataloguing system come from? Stephen Morris. Largely from the head of Tony Wilson is where the, the actual numbering system came from. Go up to Tony and say, oh, I've got an idea. Right, OK, here's a tenner. Yeah, we'll give it a fact number. I think Tony made it up as he went along. But sometimes it was fact and sometimes it was fact. There was a reason for that and then he'd come up with a reason afterwards. You buy a record, it's got a number on it. It's a carry-on, really. But Tony Wilson's system wasn't deployed for just music releases. Scroll down through the list of all 511 items and you'll find some interesting entries. An egg timer, a party, a cat and a... Rob Gretton's teeth? Oh yeah, Rob's teeth. That was another one. There was the film, Factory Flip, which always got made. Uh, factory Lawsuit. There was some wine, there was two kinds of wine. Note paper, that was another one. I think sellotape. Possibly, could have made that up. Can you tell me briefly about Factory Records? Yeah, what's it all about? What's, it, what's it all about, <laughs> the truth? I'm trained as an academic. I wanted to do experiments, laboratory experiments in popular art. I wanted to make political experiments as to how you could function politically in the marketplace. But all those things, which I might say were the reasons, I've only found out they were the reasons for doing it by doing it. Yeah. You just do it. I mean, just everything we did, everything you've done, everything we've all done, just because you wanted to do it. He liked to experiment, Tony, and the visual image of Factory was very experimental. It's the oddest thing in the world. He did Christmas cards every year, gave them numbers. He would do art every year and feature it in the factory anthology, you know, in the lists and things like that. It enabled him to create an image. And I think the thing was, because we came from punk, you didn't have to feature, and none of us expected to be featured personally. So you were able to get uh, an image and a mystery surrounded you that was much more evocative and much more enthralling than having your face stuck on the record cover. So he had a great eye, a great ear, for seeing something in somebody that you didn't. And they usually came good. As well as artful experimentation, at the heart of Factory was a sense of collaboration, a DIY attitude, a spirit of everyone mucking in together like the time Joy Division were roped in to help the Durutti column stick bits of coarse sandpaper on the sleeves of their debut album. The happiest moments I spent with Factory were sitting there with the glue, sticking together, you know, the Durutti column's first LP, sticking the sandpaper on, making them. We got paid 50p for 100. <laughs> Rubbed your hands raw. But what a great concept, you know, the idea of the LP having the sandpaper so that every time you took it out and put it away, it destroyed all the other... LPs in your collection. I just thought that was absolute genius. Again, it was an kick. it was fantastically interesting, absolutely unique, and it summed up sort of your destructive punk <laughs> <laughs> attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah
attitude. While Peter remembers diligently gluing bits of sandpaper onto record sleeves, Tony recalls a slightly different version of events. Because Ian needed money more than the rest of them, the other three watched porn movies while Ian did all the slapping of paste on. In fact, one of my greatest memories was coming back to the flat at midnight. The strange thing about paste, wallpaper paste, being slapped around is it looks rather like semen. So the fact there was a porn video on and the other three staring at the porn video and Ian slapping this fucking, this semen everywhere was just one of those memories. Designer Peter Savile. The sandpaper and the numbering were provocations to, to suggest associations. The, the sandpaper cover refers to a Dardarist book that was created to destroy all other books. The numbering was this sort of reference to culture as product for what we might say the advanced consumer society. So there's a kind of wit to a lot of the factory references, but it's there with an inherent kind of intent to evoke particular associations. So it's joining the dots between things with a certain humour, but also with a purpose. There was this stupid fucking record shop in Liverpool whose name now escapes me. We sold them 100 copies of Unknown Pleasures out of the first 5,000 and they were the last people to pay. They paid about a year and a half later, the bastards. They once threw me out of there when I was a young kid for asking for a Leonard Cohen album. When I went in years later, they went, you fucking bastard, because everyone in Liverpool hates me anyway, or May's bent to. You fucking bastard, Wilson. And apparently, the Dorothy Column album in their store downstairs had shed some of the sand off sandpaper, as it does, and it destroyed rather a large amount of their stock. So, fantastic. From fistfights and slapping around wallpaper pastes to high-minded ideas about freedom of expression and consumer culture, for Stephen Morris, factory seems unimaginable today. The thing is, today... If you were to start out, I mean, it's hard to imagine quite where, where factory would exist. Having a love of technology and art, it would be in some intangible place somewhere where it actually probably didn't actually exist. It wouldn't be social media. It definitely wouldn't be that because you didn't converse. Factory was, there you go, that's it. You decide what it is. I've no idea, really, how, how it could work today, if it could work today. It was a group of people. It was a group of people and the relationship between them, which was, like, fractious at times, but, like, we're always friends. The way that they interacted with each other, that kind of... I don't know if that works anymore when you've got to if you do things on spreadsheets. We couldn't do that. For Tony Wilson, however, no matter how important the concepts were, Factory's primary role, at its core, was to release music. It was all to do with the sacred job of putting out records. I mean, it was this miraculous thing of music and selling it to people and being part of this process that you as a kid had regarded as the greatest thing in the world, and now you were doing this thing. But the story and the impact of Factory doesn't end here. Later, we'll be throwing open the doors to a Factory creation which kick-started the regeneration of Manchester itself and put the city front and centre of the dance music revolution of the late 1980s. But before all that... Coming up in the next episode of Transmissions, 
we become intimate with the making of Joy Division's second album, Closer. And the fight to create the band's masterpiece. Rob Gretton phoned me up one night at home. It's half three in the morning and said to me, get to the studio. Martin's mixing Love Will Tear Us Apart again. Plus, we'll relive the moment that changed everything. I remember the room spinning round, you know, and just like you've been hit with a sledgehammer. It was just an enormous shock, as it would be for anyone from a selfish point of view. Just all the work we'd done has just been thrown away. I'm Maxine Peake, and make sure to join us for part four of Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production.